Good morning. You guys doing well? You guys enjoying this weather? Good stuff. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I'm excited about this morning. We're starting a brand new teaching series, The God You Long For. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 1. We just finished up a very extensive series through the book of Acts, and so Romans comes right after Acts. should be easy to find. Romans chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 25. Read a book a number of years ago that uh, really made an impact on my life. It's uh, by A.W. Tozer, and the, the statement that was at the front end of the book that really impacted me and has stayed with me for many, many years. And the statement is on your notes, and it goes like this: What comes into a what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, for we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And uh, that was from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And let me kind of summarize that because this is the premise of this whole teaching series. That whenever you are inordinately or terribly anxious, angry, or depressed, it's it's because at that moment you are forgetting who the God of the Bible is. Or maybe you have never really known him. Um, And so we're going to explore that throughout this teaching series. Because if you had any idea what God thinks about you, what he feels about you, what he has in store for you, it would light you up. You would be running to him and not away from him. The God you long for. That's what this series is about. In fact, there's nothing more powerful and practical than to know the God of the Bible intimately. There is a God-shaped hole in our soul that we try desperately to stuff full of all sorts of things in creation that ultimately can only be filled with the Creator. So where do you begin a series like this? Well, you begin by asking the question, does God exist? And uh, Romans chapter 1 is one of the classic texts on the knowledge of God. How do human beings know there is a God? And so from this teaching this morning, we're going to draw three big big ideas as it relates to the question, how does God exist? I think Paul gives us three big ideas here. Everyone knows there is a God. That's the first idea. The second one is that, but everyone, ironically and paradoxically, everyone suppresses and exchanges this truth about God. And so the third thing is, so how do we overcome this tendency so that we can know God? That's where we're going with our study this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into our text. God, we are delighted to be here today. And as we have just embarked on a whole new year, we're excited about what you have in store for us. And uh, God, we know that your word tells us in Hebrews eleven six that without faith it is impossible to please you. That for whoever would draw near to you, anyone that would want to know you and come near to you must believe that you exist and that you reward those that diligently seek you. So God, we know that belief is more than, than the agreement of facts in the head. It is an appetite for you in our heart. And so this morning, may we, may we not just know you intellectually and encounter you intellectually through the word, but may we experience it uh, in our hearts, deep in our hearts all that you have in store for us and who you are. May we encounter you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, 
Amen. Take a look at the text. Let me read through it with very little uh, commentary. It's a powerful text. And then we'll go through and unpack these uh, bigger ideas uh, starting in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or from faith from first to last. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Let's read this last verse together and aloud. Are you ready? Here we go. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And so three, three statements here. First of all, everyone knows there is a God. Everyone suppresses and exchanges this truth. And then uh, how do we overcome this tendency so that we can know God? First uh, statement on your notes. First fill in the blank. So everyone knows there's a God. First of all, we see that, and he makes it very clear through creation. Verses uh, 19 through 20. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Pretty interesting. So man is without excuse because through creation. A couple arguments here. Uh, One is the cosmological argument that has to do with the cause and effect. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We actually go into this in more detail in our Game of Life class. I teach the Game of Life class. And and we spend probably the first couple weeks just talking about is there a God? And is it rational to believe in Jesus? Is it rational to believe in the Bible? Is it rational to believe in a God who allows suffering? So we kind of work through those hurdles before we really get into what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ and what it really means to live that, uh, to really experience the fullness of life that Jesus Christ came to give to us, John 10, 10. So you'll have to come to the game of life or pick up a few good books that talk about this. But the cosmological argument is really the cause and effect. In other words, what, we, what you see, there's, we, we look around and things exist. Where did these things come from? Well, there had to be a, a cause. What, what was the cause? And, uh, and, and as you kind of work through that argument, and of course, there are those that would, are proponents of the Big Bang theory, and they believe that these floating gases collided, and then there was this explosion, and through random chance and unlimited time, we evolved into this very, you know, complex uh, complexity of, this, of what we see in creation. And uh, which is really quite interesting because actually if you study that and, and really look at the probability factors of that happening versus intelligent design, it actually takes more faith to believe in uh, 
a random chance and unlimited, you know, time, uh, that is, this, these floating gases colliding. And in fact, you have to, even when you ask those that believe that, you say, well, where did the floating gases come from? Because that's still in effect. What was the cause? What's the cause that brought about the floating gases? Well, they can't explain that. And I actually get into that in a little bit more detail in the game of life, and we talk a little bit about that. But, but it's actually pretty ludicrous, and it takes more faith to believe in the Big Bang Theory, I believe, than what it does to believe in intelligent design. In fact, the more you begin to explore this cosmological argument, the more you begin to go, wow, unbelievable. And then the second one is the teleological argument, which is order, order and design. And it, it, along with that is the fine-tuning and the fine-tuning argument that goes along with this teleological argument is that it is incalculable, it is incalculable odds for all the right dial settings uh, for the constants of physics, the forces of nature, the other physical laws and principles necessary for life to exist on earth to just have happened by chance. Um, and so, I mean, for instance, if you were walking on the beach in San Diego and all of a sudden walked upon... Uh, a very expensive waterproof watch kind of hidden down in the sand. I mean, how would you respond? You go, whoa, wow, check this out. I wonder whose this is. Nobody around. Looks like it's mine. And uh, so I'll take it down to the pawn shop and make a few bucks. But it never probably occurred to you that it was through the churning of the water and the sand and all that that it, it just kind of evolved. It just came from the ocean. And maybe if I sit there long enough and wait, maybe an iPad will wash up on the, uh, up on the shore and uh, that would be really cool. And it never occurred to you. You know, what you were probably thinking is that some surfer out there got hit a wave and flipped over and it ripped it off of his wrist. And then it washed upon the shore. You're not thinking that over, you know, random chance, unlimited time, that somehow the churning of the water made this very complex little... And it's waterproof. How about that? How did that happen? Woo! So it doesn't make sense. I mean, when you really try to look through that logically. And that's what he's saying. The man is without excuse, just through creation. Uh, Psalm 19, 1 through 6 says, uh, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. In fact, it even says that there's no place on this planet where it, it can't be heard. Just through creation. And it goes on, it talks about how the sun rising every day is like a, a bridegroom coming from uh, his pavilion on his honeymoon night. It's really very descriptive terms, very poetic and uh, really good. It was this argument, this uh, theological argument, I believe, that was instrumental in uh, helping this, uh, the British atheist philosopher Anthony Flew, who recently shocked the academic world when he said that he now believes in God because of the complexity, intricacy, and the purposefulness of the DNA. How, if you study just DNA, how profound DNA is, you know, there's no way that it could have evolved to this complexity. And so just uh, this whole idea of this intelligent design. And, and by the way, a lot of times people will uh, struggle with the whole idea that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so uh, people are saved or lost either by their accepting or rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, John uh, 14:6. that was a statement that Jesus made. And so people struggle with that. And then they'll say, well, what about the pagans who have never heard of Jesus? Well, we're answering that question for you is that they have the revelation of creation, and then the next one would be the revelation of conscience. Everybody on this planet Earth has the revelation of creation and conscience. Whether they ever hear of Christ or not, they will be held accountable to how they responded to these 
this level of revelation to whatever level of revelation that they have received and how they respond. So that's an easy question to really answer. A lot of times people will use that as a smokescreen to kind of dis- discount or discard Christianity. Easily answered, the Bible gives us the answer for that. And so creation, conscience, and this is the one I wanted to kind of focus on here. He says in verse 18 that we tend to suppress the truth, and then in verse 25 we exchange the truth. Romans two fourteen through 15 tells us that everyone has a sense of right and wrong built within their own hearts, a sense of conscience. And so when he says you suppress the truth and you exchange the truth, you can't suppress and exchange something unless you've got it. Would you agree with that? So what he's saying is that they have it intrinsically, intuitively. Everybody on this planet Earth has a sense of right and wrong within them. It's a sense of conscience. So Paul is saying that everyone knows there is a God extrinsically creation, but also everyone knows there's a God intrinsically through their conscience. A guy that uh, I study from a lot, I I like the guy, and... um, One of my primary sources for this series is Timothy Keller, and he wrote the book, The Reason for God. It's an excellent book. Uh, And he collects books written by atheists who have converted to Christianity. He has a list of uh, books, and here's a list of the different names of people. T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, C.E.M. Jode. Alistair uh, McIntyre, A.N. Wilson, and then, of course, many of you know C.S. Lewis, another guy that I, I admire, uh, dead, dead theologian, uh, philosopher, really, more than anything. But Keller says that when you look at all of these different people that converted, the, the, this list of uh, authors and list of people who were atheists who converted to Christianity, when you look at what, what brought them to faith, never is it the cosmological or the teleological argument. It's actually they all usually say, I finally admitted I knew there was a God. It was based on this sense of right and wrong within them. They could not deny the fact that there were certain things that really troubled them about planet Earth, and they couldn't get it out of their mind. Because, I mean, when you think about it, and you walk it out to its logical conclusion, that if there, isn't, if there is no God, we evolved to this very complex, complex state, that if we came from nothing and we're going to nothing, you're just going to be nothing but worm food in the dirt... You know, you're just going to, if that's where you're going, then everything in between is really amounts to nothing. So it doesn't really matter whether you're a serial killer or you're the president of the United States or, or whatever. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter. So what? You helped and propped a few people up and made it a little better for what? So that we could all eventually die? And so as they thought that through logically, you know, to its to the furthest, you know, conclusion, they had, they, they, but yet they were still troubled. Why am I so troubled, you know, over the injustices that happen around us? This is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. And he had lost uh, his mom at a young age and lost his wife and, and various things that he really struggled with. So he says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And he goes into it, and I'm not going to read the rest of it. I'll just read the little last part of it here. Uh, He goes into it extensively and kind of talks about it. And you can kind of get lost in his philosophizing as he kind of works through that, his logic. But then he goes on and he says, Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist... In other words, that the whole of reality was senseless. I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. 
So there was something inside of him that he just could not, could not get rid of. It's just that sense of right and wrong, that sense of justice. Why, why does it outrage us, you know, when someone cuts us off on the freeway or stands, you know, cuts in front of the line or any kind of thing that happens? I mean, there's worse things than that, obviously, that we really become upset over. And he said, I, I could not, I could not get beyond that. And uh, so that's that sense of conscience. And, and this intuitive evidence doesn't just come out with reason, but also without reason. It can also come out aesthetically. I call it the heart argument. And one of the uh, guys that he quoted here, and I read an article, A.N. Wilson, I read an article. I mean, he spoke against uh, the existence of God, wrote books about it, converted to Christianity, and now writes, you know, pro-Christianity, and he, I read an article that uh, talked about why I believe, it was an article published in 2009, and uh, A.N. Wilson, and you can just Google search him, and you can find some really interesting stuff about what, how he believes now, but this is what he said, and I quote, when I think about atheist friends, including my father, and they seem to me like people who have no ear for music, or who have never been in love, these unbelievers are simply missing out on something that is not difficult to grasp. What, what he's talking about here is what I call, and let me just give you a little excerpt from our game of life. It's called the heart argument. And the heart argument goes like this, and it goes along kind of with our sense of conscience, this knowing intuitively that there is a God. First John 4.16 says that God is love. It says in Genesis 1.27, it says, For God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So if God is the essence of God is love. He created us in his image. Then it means that we have this capacity for love, this capacity to connect. God has placed within our hearts the desire and the ability to love and be loved. If there is no God, love is simply a chemical reaction, a biological drive, an animal instinct. So the next time your, your friend loses a loved one, uh, then just tell them uh, chemical biological urge, you can go make, you know, you can take care of that by finding someone else to replace them. You wouldn't do that, would you? I hope not. Because that would be cruel. Because no, uh, there's a hole, uh, there's a hole in their heart that will never be filled because there was a connection that they made at a deep level that that person will never be replaced. Why is that? Because if indeed if we are just nothing but uh, the product of evolutionary process, then, then indeed that is chemical reaction, biological drive, animal instinct. Just find someone else to replace them. But that's not true. In fact, the next time that you hold a little baby in your arms, and last night I had a chance to hold the, one of my four grandsons, and he just, he'd look over at me, I'm holding him in my lap, he's looking over at me going, <laughs> just laughing, I'm like, ah, we're just laughing. Just carrying on. It's just like, that's amazing. In fact, let me just say that with, every, with all three of my kids and then all four of our grandkids, when they were born, I, I wept. It was so moving. It was so stirring. When you see a baby, when you see a child. So the next time you hold a little baby in your arms, the next time beautiful music stirs your soul, the next time the person you love looks you in the eye and, and you connect with them and, and you feel their love, the next time your children give you one of those captivating break-your-heart smiles, try imagining all of that as nothing more than a cosmic accident. Our amino acids, germs, and protoplasms able to produce hearts of love and affection towards one another? No. That's the heart argument. And so uh, we know there's a God extrinsically, creation intrinsically, uh, conscience. 
But we do this. We, everyone suppresses and exchanges this truth. Let's take a look at this next point. And we do it uh, really in two different ways. But before I head into that point, let me, uh, let me kind of walk you through something that's, this is how we do it. And so he uses, he says we suppress the truth and then we exchange the truth. So we suppress it and then we exchange it for something else. Uh, probably the best way that I could illustrate that would be, let's just uh, imagine that there's a, there's a man who loses his wife, very tragic loss. He's devastated. His identity was really in his wife and, and maybe also in his job and he's having trouble with his job. But he was left with a 10-year-old son who from that point on he begins to dote over and really spoils the son because his son has now become his identity. He sends, he sends his son to a private school. And uh, about six months into this, uh, the principal calls him up and invites him into the office and says, hey, your son is a thief, and he's ripping off the students of the teacher. And this, it's almost unbearable for this man. He can't handle it. And so on a foundational level, you know, uh, a foundational level, he, he kind of knows it because they have plenty of evidence, and yet he can't accept that because his, his child is, is really his source of meaning and purpose and identity. So he says, no, 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 you don't understand. I think people are just jealous of my son because he's really, a, 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 you know, he's really excelled in, in his classes and education and all these things. And so he takes him and moves him to another school, and the same thing happens. And he does that two, three different times with each time. What is he doing? He's suppressing the truth because he can't handle that truth. On a foundational level, he kind of knows in his heart because he's had, he, he's seen it maybe even in, his, in the interaction he's had with his son. And now it's, it's coming out through his interaction at these different schools. And yet he can't accept that because his, his, his son is his, his functional God. And we do the same thing. On a foundational level, we know there's a God. And yet we don't want God to be God of our life. We want, want to be God or we want something else. And so, we, so we, we suppress the truth and we exchange the truth of, of God for a lie. And we worship and serve created things more than the creator. We try to get our identity in something or someone other than than God. And so we do that in a couple different ways. He, it's pretty clear here in this text. We deny his existence. Next fill in the blank. And we can do that literally where there's atheists. And then there's, there's, there's the practical atheism. Anybody know what practical atheism is? You know what I'm saying when I say practical atheism? It's to say I believe in God. Uh kind of lip service, and yet everything about my life and my actions would say the opposite. If people were to watch you, you believe in God, and yet everything about your life kind of says opposite of that. If you really believed in a God and that God was taking care of you, you're acting almost as if this God isn't taking care of you because you're kind of freaking out right now. So it would be called practical atheism. So we, so we do that, uh, so we can do this, we can deny his existence literally, there is no God, or kind of in a practical atheism. Verse 21, he says, he said that they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So it kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of how that works out. Psalm 14.1 says the fool says in his heart there is no God. So that would be the literal atheism. John 3.19, Jesus said this to uh, Nicodemus uh, as he was kind of inquiring about this whole idea of the spiritual life. He says, here's the verdict Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness over light. So that would be a form of, uh, it could be a form of either uh, literal atheism or even practical atheism. That you, you actually, you believe there's a God and yet there's a lot of areas of your life where you're choosing rather than look to God's word to direct you and guide you. You're choosing you, you know, your own path. And uh, 
another verse on your notes, Psalm 10, 4. It puts it this way, in all of his thoughts, the his is proud, in all of his thoughts, the proud, the proud's thoughts, there is no room for God. So how would I know whether or not I've got practical atheism? I believe in a God, Pastor Ray, but how would I know that I've got practical atheism really happening in my life? Here's really how you know is that um, in all of your thoughts, there's no room for God, that there's something other than God that dominates your thoughts, stirs your deepest emotions, and that you effortlessly give your time and money to. I mean, just look at your life and how you're living out your life. Um, it's a form of practical atheism. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. I go to church and I read my Bible. And Yeah, but everything else about your life is showing otherwise. Something other than God dominates your thoughts, stirs your deepest emotions. What do you get most excited about? And effortlessly, volitionally, with the act of your will, effortlessly you give your time and money to things other than, than to God and living for his glory. Um, I bought my wife a, a Christmas gift uh, this year. Don't usually do that. And uh, we don't usually buy gifts for each other. I'm her gift. So I just wrap myself up. I put a bow on me and say, Happy birthday. Merry Christmas. Happy anniversary. And uh, I bought her a gift, and uh, she grabbed the gift. She hugged the ki- gift. She kissed the gift. She loves the gift more than she loves me. I'm just heartsick over that. And she doesn't want to have anything to do with me now. She is so preoccupied with the gift. She just tells everybody about this gift, and, and it's just pray for my wife. She's really messed up. And uh, that's actually not true. I did not give her a gift, actually. And we, we don't give each other gifts. We, we go together and we'll buy things that we, we want or need or, or something like that. We prefer to give to others because we feel like we have way too much. And so it gives us an opportunity to do that. But wouldn't that be kind of weird if she really did do that? And yet, don't we do that? Don't we tend to make more of the gifts, all that we have on this planet Earth, than we do of the one who gave us those gifts? There's nothing wrong with enjoying creation, but when our joy becomes idolatrous, but our joy becomes idolatrous when it terminates on the gift rather than the giver. That's what he's saying. I mean, he's saying it. He says, uh, he says, they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's what it means. And that's, that would be a form of practical atheism. You know, yeah, I believe in God, and yet... And yet something else dominates your thoughts, stirs your deepest emotions, and you spend your time and efforts in towards those things. You make much of the gifts more than the gift giver. There's even churches that do that, you know, uh, that they actually promote that and push that and teach in that direction. It's really quite interesting. But Psalm 92, 4, it says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. What is he saying there? He says, So for you, O Lord... You made me glad by your work. So it's your work. I recognize that all that that I have comes from you. Um, So our gratitude must ultimately be rooted not in what he gives, but in who he is. How do you know? How do you know that you're not just a practical atheist? How do you know that you're not making much of the gifts that he gives you more so than him? You you haven't come to him... uh, You've come to him to get from him more than to be with him. How do you know the difference? 
You know that based on whether you get what you think you should get from him. And when you don't, we tend to shake our fist at the real God. You've heard me say this before. We shake our fist at the real God because he won't give us our false God. I can't believe this. I've been serving you and I've been doing all this and, I, and, and this is how you treat me. I've been praying and nothing. I don't get any response. So, so it really comes down to how do you respond to suffering? <laughs> how do you respond to suffering? Do you discard God? And I've, I've talked about it back during the Acts series. Talked about people defect from the faith for two different reasons. One is that they become uh, deceived by the pleasures of life. And that's crazy. Because there's no pleasure in creation that goes beyond the pleasure that can be found in God. So that's one way. We're deceived by the pleasures of life, but we're, we're disillusioned by the pressures of life, the pain of life. And it's because we're, we've really yet to see that in Him, that He is our most satisfying reality. That in Him is infinite and eternal joy. Now listen to me. There's no gift. There's no gift on this planet. There's nothing on this planet that compares to the Creator. <laughs> There's nothing. Oh, my goodness. And for you to think so and to let your mind be wrapped around the stuff of this world, whether it be a football game or your career or a relationship, that's crazy. That's ludicrous. That's practical atheism. That's, that's someone who's, who's right here. They do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So how do you respond to to the pleasures of this world, how do you respond to the pain of this world? Man, if you understood the weight of glory that's in God, glory, weight, significance, importance, begin to get a glimpse of who he is, it just far outweighs anything in this world. So that's one way. We, we deny his existence. You do it literally or practical, practical atheism. But then also we do this. We redefine his existence. We do it like this. I hear people do this a lot. Well, I like to think of God as... As a loving God. Oh, but did I tell you that part of love is wrath? <laughs> We're going to talk about that in this series. You know, if you really love someone, you're going to get angry if they're hurting them or hurting someone else, won't you? And it's unloving for you to allow someone to hurt you. In fact, you need to show some anger towards them if they're trying to hurt you. <laughs> That's all part of love. See, you've got a really shallow definition of love. But, uh, but see, we try to define God in, in our image. We try to make him in our image. J.I. Packer put it this way. We cannot reduce God to pygmy proportions and hope to end up as more than pygmy Christians. A.W. Tozer put it this way. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. One of the texts we'll probably look at through this series is Psalm, Psalm 8. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place, revelation of creation. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So, so there's a beautiful balance that, that and, and beware of this, too, that we all tend to swing to one extreme or the other. We want the good buddy God that he's everybody's friend or we want this holy, righteous God hellfire kind of a God. So, but the, you got to get both. you got to have the balance. And so in that text, we have the balance. There should be a sense of the more you get to know God, there should be a greater sense of, wow, oh my goodness, I had no idea how, oh my. And that would be a normal response as you're getting to know God. But then there should also be combined with, 
When I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the stars and the moon, how you've set them in place, what is man? Mm, oh my goodness. I have never experienced anyone more satisfying. So that's, that's that God is transcendent, but God is imminent. God is powerful, but God is personal. God is great, but God is good. You've got to have the balance. You swing to an extreme, you get out of balance. That's, so when we try to define God as, well, he's just, he's just loving, or he's just great, and we, to the exclusion of his goodness, we're in error. And so, uh, so we redefine his existence and we need to be, be careful of that. Daniel 11.32, it says, The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. In other words, the more I get to know God, the less I'll be stressed by the trials and seduced by the temptations of life. The more I get to know God. Do you have any idea? For those of you that have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... Do you have any idea who it is that walks through your day with you? Oh, my goodness. I mean, that, that, that alone, as you begin to reflect on that and think about that, is that you have infinite wisdom guiding you. You have perfect love comforting you. You have unlimited power protecting you. That's the God of the Bible. If you've put your faith in Jesus, that's for real. And it's so important to get that down deep into your heart, not just to know it intellectually, but existentially, so that it moves you and it begins to change you in how you respond to the circumstances of life. It means everything. So how do we overcome this tendency to know God? Here's, here's three things. Then we're going to take communion this morning. So our tendency is to suppress and exchange that truth. How do we overcome it? Pray for a more vivid view of God. And, and that's why I pray for us every week. Every week I pray, God, give us, open the eyes of our heart that we may see you more clearly. In the book of Job, how many have ever read through the book of Job? Heavy duty book. Job, who was a blameless, upright man who feared God and shunned evil. He, I mean, he loses everything. Loses his wealth, health, his kids, except for his wife. And... Uh, because she was a bit of a nag, it seems it's apparent that, you know, the only encouraging words that she could say to him is that when he's kind of on his deathbed, he, she turns to him and says, curse God and die. And uh, thank you very much for those words of encouragement. Uh, it's almost like you're drowning and she puts your, her hand on his head and shoves him underneath. Go ahead, die. I'm better off without you. And, um, and so, I mean, the guy's going through major trauma and then his miserable comforters show up. And most of the book is about his miserable comforters and just what terrible comfort that they're bringing. And they're legalists and they're moralists. And so he's struggling. He's struggling throughout the book and he's asking this question, Why? Why, God? Why is this happening? I'm sure you've asked that question before. We all have. And God shows up. And this is what, uh, what Job says. I had heard of you. I had an intellectual knowledge of you. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God showed up. He didn't need any more answers. All he needed was, a, was this understanding of who God is. That's all he needed. That's all you need. You get one glimpse of his glory. 
Oh my goodness, you'll be going, wow, I don't need any answers. God, you're in control. You love me with an everlasting love. You're going to take care of me. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to live for your glory. This isn't about me. It's about you. That's what he was doing. That's what happened. That's what we desperately need. A more vivid view of God will bring perspective, peace, and power to persevere. Want to lose your sorrows and drown your cares? Then plunge yourself into the deepest sea of the knowledge of God and be refreshed and invigorated. J.I. Packer puts it this way. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold, wasting life and losing your soul. So we need to pray for a more vivid view of God. God, reveal yourself to me. Here's the second thing. Practice seeing everything as a gift from God and a pointer to God. So just start practicing. So back to verse 21. Honor him as God and give thanks to him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 it says... Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. A couple other verses. Let me read them to you just so that you don't think that God wants us to enjoy the things that he's given us, certainly. And so this is really how we do it. First Timothy 4, 4, it says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. First Timothy 6, 17 says, As for the rich, don't be proud or set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't make your identity your wealth. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. James 1.17 says every good and perfect gift comes from God. So here's what C.S. Lewis said. I like what he wrote. He says, I have tried to make every pleasure a channel of adoration. And then he goes on, he says, we know, so as he's experiencing these uh, pleasures, he's saying, we know we are being touched by a finger of that right hand at which there are pleasures forevermore. So when you're drinking your coffee in the morning, oh, thank you, Jesus. That tastes really good. That's what he's saying. I started doing that this week uh, more so than ever before. It made a difference in my week. I mean, I'm showering in the morning. Wow, this water feels good. Thank you, God, for the warmth of this. Oh, and these clothes and all oh, those socks really feel good when I put them on. And, 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 I, and I meet my wife and in the morning we go, oh, my, look at you. Woo, you look beautiful. I love you. And I mean, just, it just changes your whole outlook on life, really enjoying everything that God has given you. Beginning to look at, wow, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Use it as an practice seeing everything. As a gift from God and a pointer to God. But once again, don't get all captivated with the gift. Oh, look at this. And make that your God. Let it point to God. And use this as an opportunity, as a, as a worship experience. Here's the last, last one. Let the ultimate revelation of God's passion. This is really kind of, that will help us do this. Let the revelation of God's passion for you captivate your heart. Did you notice verses 16 and 17? We go all the way back to the very beginning of our text. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. We're talking about the gospel. Then he explains the gospel, salvation of everyone who believes. Verse 17 explains it. For there is this righteousness, a righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Do you understand what that is saying? That in Christ, this righteousness, God sees you as righteous, holy, beautiful. His verdict overturns all other verdicts. You stand before God completely righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. Do you have any idea what he's done for you? Oh my goodness. That's amazing. So let the ultimate revelation of God's passion for you captivate your heart. The gospel is that you, you, we are sinners saved by Christ's works, not ours. So rest in his, 
his work, his work on the cross. Let me end by a story, and then I'm going to share these stories just to kind of help to prepare our hearts for communion this morning. So if those of you that are going to pass out communion, you can make your way back there if you would like. And then um, you are going to want to hear this story, though, okay? So keep an open ear as, as you walk back there. And uh, those that are going to come up and lead in this song. But uh, a couple great, really interesting stories. I was four years old when this happened, but the first Russian cosmonaut that went into space, we were kind of racing the Russians into space, space travel and all that. First Russian cosmonaut that went into outer space when he came back down, um, it was in 1961, and this is what he said. He said, my atheism has been confirmed because I went up into space and I looked around and didn't see any God. And of course, those of us that know better that all he needed to do was to step outside of his space capsule without any breathing apparatus, and he would have certainly seen God, okay? (laughs) So that's a no-brainer right there, okay? It's like, duh. Now, C.S. Lewis was still alive. I think he died in 62, JFK, the same day that JFK was assassinated. And uh, C.S. Lewis responded to this. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He said, uh, responded to this writing with an essay on Revelation. He said, if there is a God, he would not relate to us like a person on the second story would relate to a person on the first story. God would relate to us as Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Hamlet can't find anything about Shakespeare by going upstairs or backstage. The only way Hamlet is going to find anything out about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare has to write information about himself into the play it's called revelation there's a gal by the name of dorothy sayers uh, she was the first woman to ever graduate from oxford and she she wrote uh, she was a writer of mystery novels she wrote the peter whimsy mystery novels and in her mystery novels peter whimsy was a uh, detective always solving mysteries but was a very poor lonely bachelor and about halfway through Uh, The series uh, of these detective novels, a character shows up named Harriet Vane. And guess what? She writes mystery novels and and was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Who does this sound like? Dorothy Sayers had looked into her own creation and fallen in love and saw how lonely he was. So she wrote herself into the story and she rescued him. They got married and they lived happily ever after. Cool story. That's our story. The gospel is a love story. God looked down and saw our struggle and our pain and our sin and our suffering, and he wrote himself into the story. It's called the incarnation. We just celebrated. It's called Christmas. And he showed up here, and he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died to give us fullness of life. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we are amazed. You have revealed yourself to us through creation, through our conscience. You've revealed yourself to us through this, through your word this morning as we've studied it. And you've ultimately revealed yourself to us through your son, our savior. And so now as we take communion, we want to connect with you through your son and all that he has accomplished for us. We prepare our hearts, reveal yourself to us, renew your love, help us to see 
that you have a, an amazing love, that, that infinite wisdom is guiding each and every one of us that have put our faith in you, that perfect love comforts us. Lord, I know that there are those that need to have your comfort in their hearts and that unlimited power is protecting us. Lord, let us see you more vividly this morning than ever before. Open the eyes of our heart. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might be able to say, wow, and mmm. In Jesus' name, amen. I started off by saying that anytime you have inordinate anxiety, anger, depression, it's because at that moment you have forgotten who the God of the Bible is. Or maybe you've never known him. This is an opportunity for us to reconnect with him, to be reminded of who the God of the Bible is. You know that you're making uh, progress in growth when you can begin to apply the love of God specific to, to the place in your heart where you are most restless. So it's really important to kind of, where am I most restless? Where am I most anxious? Where am I most angry? What's going on here? It's a great opportunity to do that. These elements represent his broken body for you, his shed blood for you. And they tell us when we look at the cross that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. We were so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. That eliminates any superiority, doesn't it? Yeah. But it also tells us that uh, we were more loved than we ever dared to dream. That he loved us so much he wanted to die for us. And so what that does is it creates within us a humble confidence. It's a, it's a great way to, to face life, to deal with life, and then our life becomes about him. So as you take the, the bread... He was with his disciples and he broke it and said, this represents my body which is broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. Let's do that. The same night, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant and as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. So God, thank you for the fullness. We have uh, through... Your son, Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Next week, we are going to talk about an encounter with God. What does that mean to encounter God? And we're going to study uh, Exodus chapter 3, Moses' encounter with God, the burning bush. So it'll be a lot of fun. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace as you cultivate this, this awareness of his presence in your life. As you give glory to him in all that you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to his glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.